This is Nate Hansen and Tim Ritter. We are Almost Heretical. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. All right, welcome to Almost Heretical. This week we are uh, going to tackle a couple questions we got on one topic, and the topic is rape. And so if you ever want to send your question in, you have something that maybe got triggered by one of the shows we did, um, or just something that you were thinking, you can do that at almostheretical.com. And then there's a way to actually submit an audio question at the bottom of the page. That's the best way to get your question on the show, because we love hearing your voice. All right, Tim, what... uh? What are these questions that we got? Yeah, well, actually, before we play them, just a heads up, uh, this episode isn't going to be intentionally provocative or risque or whatever, uh, but obviously it's the topic of rape, uh, which is a horrific topic to even have to address, um, and we're, we're going to address sort of biblical studies, the Bible uh, on rape, not uh, social psychology, but all that to say... Uh, if you're someone who listens to this show with kids, which I don't know if anybody out there does that, uh, this probably isn't a good one to listen to. And if you personally have any trauma uh, related to rape, you probably haven't started listening to this episode. Uh, if so, like I say, we're not going to be intentionally, um, what's the word? You know, we're not just stirring the pot. We're not going to whatever, but we're going to talk about rape for a good hour here. So uh, just know that going in and uh, and don't listen if you need to not listen. Okay, so here's the first question we got. And specifically, this episode is going to be on rape in the Old Testament, uh, or the Hebrew Bible, as we typically call it. Here's the first question. Hi, Nate and Tim. This is Julie from Grapevine. I've been listening for a couple of months. I started at the beginning. And notice that when you talk about the Nephilim and King David, you talk about them as raping the women in their stories. This makes sense in the context that you tell the stories, but when I read the Bible and the translations I've always had around me, I don't necessarily see it as rape. Uh, So my question is, are you assuming rape because of the power structures of the society, or is there textual stuff going on that I don't see uh, that really clearly points to rape? It may not really matter because clearly both stories are bad, but every time I hear you talking about it, I wonder. Thanks. Thanks, Julie. Thanks for the question. Um, I think that's a great question. I kind of have the same one. Like, how do how do you? I I, I know. Um, I'm gonna point the finger at Tim because Tim's the one that always said that. And I, I'm gonna ask you, Tim. Like, how how did you know that? Like, how do you see that that's rape there? Because that doesn't always say that, does it? Yeah, actually, uh, what we're gonna explore is that there is rape happening all over the scriptures. Uh, there a lot of narratives about rape and then a lot of references to acts of rape and sexual violence in the prophetic literature. Uh, Yet there actually is no technical word for rape in the Hebrew Bible. And that has to do with a few reasons. But but one is uh, that our concept of rape is essentially based on modern concepts of the equality of all human beings, especially women, and the the natural inherent rights to agency over one's own body uh, that what we're going to get into in a little bit just didn't exist uh, 
amongst the audience uh, and in the minds of at least many of the authors writing uh, the text that we have in our Bibles. Um, what we're going to see is rape is happening. Uh, a lot of activities that we would call rape very clearly are, are happening in the stories of the Bible. Um, but, and there's some, some grammatical language uh, that will point out that actually is cluing in and is trying to uh, tell the readers this is sort of like a violent sexual act. This isn't a uh, mutually enjoyed consensual act. But even saying that consensual, like consent is a modern concept based on belief that a, a woman has a right to her own body as well as a man, but specifically that women and children have rights to their own body, that slaves have rights to their own body. Uh, that's a belief that we have. So if anybody breaks somebody's right to, uh, to agency over their own body, we call that rape. But that belief in those rights didn't exist at the time. So, uh, so that is why there is no technical word for rape. So actually, we're going to uh, talk about a couple uh, articles. And then part of the reason I wanted to do a whole episode on this is we're going to see this is going to take us down a deeper rabbit hole that's going to force us to ask some questions about what to do with the Bible and ethics and how we change and how we adapt and the role of modern science and viewpoints and all that. So here we go. I like that. I like that road. <laughs> Let's do it's it. It's pretty, pretty common road for us. <laughs> so the two stories that Julia's mentioning, uh, she mentioned the, the Nephilim and she mentioned David. So uh, pretty sure that's when we've talked about Genesis 6 and the weird story of the sons of God coming down and having sex with the daughters of men and uh, the, the famous or infamous David and Bathsheba story. Oh, I'm really interested to get to that one. Really interested to get to But okay, but, but with the Nephilim, are you just assuming that because one are like spiritual, powerful beings and the other are not, that that has to be some form of rape? Yeah, so we're going to see there are kind of three things. We're not going to give them all equal time here. One is just reading the story in context. And uh, and this has been a pet project of mine, something I've been taking notes on for a couple of years now. Uh, and I've shared some of that on the podcast. But the whole theme of power and the abuse of power that runs through uh, the Hebrew Bible uh, these two rape stories, or let's just call them these two stories, the, the Genesis 6 uh, thing, weird thing happening, and the David and Bathsheba story, uh, those are two of many stories of sexual violence happening in the Hebrew Bible that most of them are, are part of their, their vignettes, scenes of a, of a bigger story going on about the abuse of power. And... Uh, so, so one thing is basically just reading in context and kind of seeing like what is the overall point that these stories are trying to get across and how does this story relate to another story? Uh, we'll see some of uh, design patterns, kind of how those are playing in to use Tim Mackey's language. Um, two is simply getting into the weeds of the grammar and we'll do a little bit of that here. Uh, but then three, and, and I think maybe we'll just talk about this here up front and then kind of move on to some of the biblical scholarship stuff. But it is, Julie, like you said, 
just the power dynamic at play. And um, again, this is something I've reflected a lot on in the past few years. I was slow personally on the uptake to uh, to come to terms <laughs> with the role of power in life and society. And, uh, and so one thing that I think the last few years has, has made most of us who've been paying attention aware of with the Me Too movement and the Church Too movement and all of these stories of political celebrities and Hollywood celebrities, uh, typically powerful men sexually assaulting <laughs> women that, uh, were in some sort of subordinate position to them is that power dynamics uh, essentially create a whole a whole world of issues when it comes to sexual relationships um, such that consent, the idea of consent, basically uh, becomes so muddy, it's when someone has a tremendous amount of power over another person, it's not really consent. Then it's impossible to know. If, yeah, it's impossible. If you are the king of Israel, <laughs> if you are King David, it is impossible to know whether you actually have a person's consent. If you are a famous celebrity uh, actor or <laughs> the president of a basketball organization, like all these different stories that come out, it's the power dynamic is so great that people under you feel so scared to to say no. Well, and they might even have conflicting like thoughts, feelings, like about the whole thing because there's there's other things involved. You know what I'm saying? Like it, it might be hard for them to even know what cons- you know what I'm saying. So I think totally. I think there's so much more going on there. You're right. Muddy so, is a great word. So when I was uh, doing some of the study, I was just thinking like I actually can kind of vaguely remember a time years back where. I remember knowing or hearing somewhere that it's never okay. It's basically never okay to have a sexual relationship with an employee or a boss. Uh, basically, like as an HR policy, right? You know. Um, but I never. I don't think I ever understood that until the la- the last few years, and and now I'm realizing like, oh, I t- I totally get the the <laughs> rationale, right? It, it, it makes perfect sense. And the fact that I didn't get it just shows what kind of position of privilege and power I've always uh, been able to live my life from. But the whole reason is to basically say like consent is, is n- the idea of asking for consent and receiving a, an affirmative yes uh, doesn't apply in a, when the relationship is in a, a strong hierarchy where there's a, a big power gap, right? So um, this reminds me of totally different topic. I mean, to an extent in my case, um, but just like some uh, of the leadership that I was um, a part of, I just back in, in the church and stuff like that. Like I just remember when questions, when the lead guy would ask a question of like, we're all like, this is right, right? We all feel like this, right? Right. And the amount of difficulty to have like a dissenting voice in that position, this is not sexual at all, but just like with any topic, should we do it this way? Should we do it that way? Like it is very, very difficult. That's in the church world, but in anything, I mean, I've seen like with the CEO of a company, like it's, it's very difficult to have a dissenting voice and to, to make that stand. And some people like you, Tim, they're more able to, they, their, their disposition is such that that's an easier um, stand to make or it's easier to voice their opinion or 
when they think something is wrong or off or yeah. But for other people like me, that's a much harder stand and step to make. Um, and so when it's that, when there's that power differential, just in general, I think it's really hard to be a dis- dissenting voice. Totally. So this episode isn't going to be on uh, the the rampant abuse and cover up of abuse in churches, not just evangelical church, but the church throughout much of history. It's not the topic here, but let's just stop and point out like the reason <laughs> that sexual abuse is so rampant amongst pastors, uh, typically men uh, who are either youth pastors or uh, pastors of adults who have positions of not just institutional power, but spiritual religious authority. Uh, it shouldn't be surprising to us that a, a tremendous amount of those people use that power to prey upon people and then, uh, can try to get away with it because it's easy to silence those, uh, who, uh, like you say, have so much to lose (laughs) if you, uh, stand up and dissent. So that, that's not what we're talking about, but we, we get in all that simply to say many, many people have taken that lens on life, which I think is, is just a, a reasonable and, tr- and true <laughs> lens of thinking about some of the basics along consent and rape. And then they read the story and they go, okay, David is the king of Israel and Bathsheba is an, an un- <laughs> potentially, we'll, we'll get into this, potentially an unnamed woman. Uh, and potentially even uh, an immigrant, an outsider, uh, a Canaanite, and you just look at those those facts. Or even you know, even if Bathsheba is some you know big shot in Israel. I have a question. How have you heard um, Bathsheba, her character, just be kind of? This is a little bit of a leading question, but like, have you heard her character be like drugged through the mud whenever this topic is preached on? Um, have you heard that? Are you familiar with that? So, yeah, yes, I'm familiar with it. We're going to touch on that a little bit. I've never personally been in a church when somebody's uh, preached that. Or... I think it's subtle. Well, it's... it's subtle. Even even just saying she was on the roof as if that was so scandalous for that time or something like that, you know? It's like probably everyone was bathing on the roof. Like, why would you have a bath inside your house you know, like the, we just assume Western 21st century technology um, and that she is some outlier that's trying to flaunt her body and attract people or something. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I think how people read without any <laughs> Hebrew grammar, without any strong literary uh, knowledge of some of the, you know, more intimate details of what's happening in the Old Testament you just read this story at face value, how people interpret the story to me reveals a lot about how we think about women, how we think about uh, the power in society, basically how we think about patriarchy. So what you're saying is often subtle, Nate, I think is often subtle. I've heard many stories of it being far, far less than subtle. Uh, But one of the articles uh, we're going to reference pulled up this quote from Martin Luther and oh boy, I had no idea uh, about this one. Uh, but Luther actually blamed, uh, Bathsheba, of course, uh, for causing David to stumble quote over a couple of pigtails and then called Bathsheba a domestic enemy, the house devil with her beautiful face and her smooth tongue. Wow. So here we have (laughs) 
500 years ago, and I'm sure people have said the same thing in churches all over uh, just this year. Uh, a man, supposedly in the name of Christ, blaming a woman for what we'll come to see is very clearly her own rape. Uh, like, how, how many times do we have to see that again and again and again, right, before? Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, it works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. <laughs> um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> Well, when I grew up, it was, you know, telling it's the purity culture and the modesty culture and telling women that they have to dress a certain way. Otherwise, they're, you know, asking for it. This is in like youth groups type of that that type of culture um, and Christian schools monitoring finger uh, skirt length and all this type of stuff. Um, it's that same type of thing that if you if you do X, Y and Z men aren't strong enough to it's the it's the mike pence rule right like men aren't strong enough to control themselves and so like we have to put these rules around women and their bodies and their dress and their conduct and all this so that men because i mean come on you know like it's just it's ridiculous and that's crazy that like here's the the hero of the reformation and the hero of still reformed doctrine and Calvinism today on record. That's pretty crazy stuff right there. Right. So, okay. So there's, I mean, there's so much more you could say. I mean, what was the tweet a week ago, two weeks ago from a Catholic priest whining and complaining like he was the victim because another Catholic priest had to go up and ask a woman to, uh, to cover her shoulders because she was going to cause all the priests uh, to sin. It's just like, uh, this whole world of blaming, especially in the church, of men blaming women for their own evil, uh, blaming victims of sexual violence and sexual harassment. Uh, it's crazy. So there, there's one sense in which uh, the David and Bathsheba story is, is kind of a litmus test, I think, for us today. Um, but uh, Julie's question is totally fair. Like, is the text explicitly stating this as rape or are we just applying our modern understanding of power dynamics and saying, you know what, uh, if if he was the king and she was, you know, some some poor uh, peasant girl, like, did, did she even have a choice? Like, could this have possibly been consensual? Um, that's a that's a legitimate question. So we'll we'll get into it, and some of the stuff we'll see is interesting. Um, and I'll just point out that uh, part of why I've been on a shtick of pointing out uh, the theme of power in the Hebrew Bible is. I think a lot of people think that that's like a modern uh, obsession, you know, that's basically like uh, 21st century scholarship, 
getting into liberals' heads, and now we just think about power all the time. I actually think the writers of the Hebrew Bible thought a lot more about power dynamics than we do. Um, it doesn't mean I agree <laughs> with the way they construed everything, but I actually do think they were thinking about the, the topic of power even more uh, than we are today. Um, so they would not have been uh, blind to the power dynamic in the story. It's not just us noticing that today because we think about power a lot. Uh, actually, uh, I'll point out some clues to see that, like I said, this story of David and Bathsheba is there to show that David was abusing his power uh, as the king. Uh, so let's get into some of the weeds. Some of it will be interesting. Some of it will be less interesting. And then we'll get to actually another follow-up question on rape. But you're not supposed to tease the next section by saying, this might not be interesting. Come on, man. Okay, I won't do this that. This is going to be riveting. Uh, it will be riveting. Okay, so there are two articles uh, I'm going to reference. Um, I don't know if either of them are available for free publicly, but you can try to find them, or you could always, uh, if you really want to read them, uh, pay into... NerdWeb! Uh, the NerdWeb, <laughs> nice. Um, so, the first one, uh, and first it actually came out first and is referenced in the second article, is by a woman named Sandy Gravette. And it is titled, Reading Rape in the Hebrew Bible, A Consideration of Language. And the second article is kind of building off of uh, Gravette's main uh, point, is by another woman named Jennifer Andruska. And it is titled, Rape in the Syntax of 2 Samuel 11.4. So 2 Samuel 11.4, 2 Samuel 11 is where we find the story of David and Bathsheba, and 11.4 is specifically the sentence that uh, that speaks of David seeing Bathsheba, sending someone to take her. Uh, so actually, Nate, why don't we uh, Play it? Read... You want me to play the song? Let me get my guitar. The oh. song? What song? <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> well, your faith was strong. But you needed proof You saw her bathing on the roof Her beauty and the moonlight overthrew you <laughs> She tied you to her kitchen chair She broke your throne and she cut your hair And from your lips she drew a Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Should I keep going? No. Wow. That song, Tim. All right. I don't even know how to respond to that. <laughs> so I, I should say, before we jump back into the uh, David Bathsheba, because we're going to leave Genesis 6 behind, uh, which you're probably happy to hear because you think I always like to get into the weird... Are we going to talk about the weird divine, the being divine beings again, Tim? <laughs> no, we're not. I'm just going to play the guitar um, if you're going to do that. <laughs> uh, 
but uh, because that was part of your question, Julie, uh, where I mentioned that I think the the Genesis six thing is is rape as well, is for two of those three reasons. So one is that uh, the story I believe I believe all of Genesis three through eleven is different chapters of a story that's that's talking about the abuse of power, and that's setting up uh, the problem is. Uh, Human beings were were given the power to rule on earth, and then there's this war for power that happens. So I think part of the story is that it's this power grab from the divine realm to this human realm. So I'm just in the context, I think it makes sense that it's rape. And then secondarily, uh, the same argument we just said, if if there's a tremendous power dynamic, like could could consent even be possible? And you can just apply the same lens to uh, divine beings, gods, essentially, uh, having sex with uh, with women. Uh, it's the same thing of like, can, I mean, and obviously it's weird territory, but like, could a woman even say no to a God that was interested? You know, like it's kind of the same. Not if it was the God's will. (laughs) I can't even, anyway, that's enough with Genesis six. We're done there. Let's get to poor Bathsheba. Uh, by the way, small vignette, uh, we're excited to get chickens for the first time, and uh, we got five chicks this spring. We're only allowed to have four here in Bend, Ooh. and so we got five, you know, hoping they would all survive, uh, but knowing something could always happen, and my wife named one of the five, and she named it Bathsheba, and Bathsheba died. <laughs> Week one, and- You shouldn't be laughing. Right. It- it shouldn't be funny, but I just think that name has been cursed for the longest time. So, Lord be with all of the Bathshebas out there. Wow. That was a downer. <laughs> we really haven't even gotten off the ground here yet, Nate. Okay. This is not going to be a pick-me-up, but let's read the first few verses of Second Samuel 11. I guess that's me. Bible gateway. Second Samuel 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war... David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. I feel like we need like a... (laughs) The woman was very beautiful and David sent someone... It's dangerous now. I got my guitar. So David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. That's cool. We can cut it there. Uh, Do you remember, though, then sort of the follow-up next part of the story? he He gets her husband killed, puts him on the front lines or something, gets him killed. Then she, he brings, he has her marry him or something like that. Yeah, a couple other things. So we'll just look at some of the clues here. So one of the things that happens, so you're right. So the, the next part of the story is then David tries to cover up his act, which I'm going to call a sexual assault, but I haven't proved that yet. But uh, he's going to cover up his act uh, by trying uh, first, what he's going to do is try to get Uriah to immediately come home and sleep with his wife. So there's no way of knowing that 
it it wasn't Bathsheba's husband, right? Right. And uh, interestingly, Uriah refuses, basically, uh, because he doesn't want to experience uh, a kind of privilege going home to be with his family that the other soldiers in the army don't get to have. So here's just one piece where we're just going to read this story in context. Why does that little bit get in there? And why do we need to know that this event happened in the spring when kings usually go out to battle, but David decided to stay home in Jerusalem? It makes David look more like a loser, and it makes this other guy look more like a legit guy because he wanted to do the right thing and David was doing the wrong thing. Right, and specifically, it's it's not just broad, loser, good guy. It's uh, David is abusing his power and privilege. He's the king, but instead of going out and being on the front lines to lead the people out, he's uh, staying at home in the palace taking advantage of people. And the other guy has a chance to get out of it and use this power from the king to go not be on the front lines, and he doesn't take it. Exactly. To, to be a man of integrity. Uh, so it's it's pairing uh, Uriah and David as antithesis. Uh, this happens all over the place. Um, and the whole point <laughs> is, is what is David going to do with his power he just got? He was a little man. He was a little guy, just a little shepherd boy. But now he has all this power. What is he doing with it? This is the beginning of the author of, of the book Samuel telling us He's going to do what everybody else has done. They're going to get power and, and abuse it. The story with Bathsheba is is the the climax of that uh, point. Uh, second little bit of reading in context. Uh, if you remember, if you listened to the episode where we had Tim Mackey on the show, he talked about looking for design patterns and ways that Stories uh, and and bits of the literature and pieces of the Bible uh, are intentionally stitched to others. So what you just read, Nate, was that, what, the NIV? Yeah. So this is just something you would never see if you didn't, uh, if you weren't looking for this, you didn't have some tools, you didn't have some scholarly help. Uh, But in, uh, in the Hebrew, what it, what it basically says is that David saw Bathsheba. She was good, literally tov, the word for good, basically good in appearance. So most translations say she was very beautiful or beautiful in appearance. It says David saw her and that she was good in appearance. And so David sent a messenger, but then the the uh, subject of of the next line is is back to David and took her. <laughs> and so think about that. David David saw that something was good and took it. Uh, does that remind you of any story in the Bible? Yes. <laughs> Care to share? Do you want all oh, you want me to tell you? <laughs> it reminds me of uh, Genesis three um, with Adam and Eve. And a fruit. Exactly. So the the wording in Genesis 3 is Eve saw that the tree was good and she took the fruit. Saw, took, no, saw, good, took. Uh, So intentionally, uh, this language is being used to depict this act as a kind of 
uh, wrongful use of one's uh, privilege or power. He had the possibility to do something that he should not be doing. Uh, we don't need to take it too literally. It's not like, you know, what's the relationship between apples and whatever. It's more of just saying like this is a, uh, a paradigmatic way of saying uh, <laughs> David's doing something wrong. Um, so then those are two ways of just reading this in context, sort of reading the literature. But then a couple of points that these two articles uh, will point out. Um, one is, and some of this will probably uh, ring familiar with you, Nate. There are several ways of saying in Hebrew, uh, several ways of talking about two people having sex or having a sexual relationship that are essentially consensual. Again, I think consent is more our concept than theirs, but it it implies that the two parties are sort of in this together. So one is uh, the phrase to lie with. I was just going to ask about that one. Yeah. Yeah. So actually, uh, the follow-up in the story, David covers up his abuse by having Uriah killed and then gets rebuked by Nathan. Nathan is uh, is voicing the rebuke of God in the language of this text and uh, gets rebuked for it. And we're going to get into that for a second because I think it's important and telling. Um, what happens is that the child that was to be born from David and Bathsheba dies. David takes, this is the language, takes Bathsheba as his wife, and then they have another child. This child becomes Solomon, obviously an important character. So the implication is there's this first event where David sees a stranger and, and goes and takes her. You know, we're talking about the power dynamic. If if you can go take a person, you know, that's a very strong uh, power differential between you two. If you can send people to go take her for you, that's <laughs> probably means you even have even more power. So at first he goes and takes her, but then after Bathsheba becomes a widow with no role in society, she becomes one of David's many wives. And then years later, they have another child. Wait, wait. I thought that the Bible said one man and one woman marriages. <laughs> Uh, if we kidding. don't circle okay, back to that in 15 minutes, uh, <laughs> remind me because we will. No, seriously, we will. Okay. Um, so then it says uh, in a chapter later, David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her. And that's another way of saying essentially this is a kind of consensual sex to lie with or to go into. Um, it's basically Hebrew is a language that compared to English, has very few words, right? So, so you make words that mean other things have particular meanings in particular contexts. So to lie with, to go into. And then the third one that you probably remember is to know, mm -hmm. right? So this is like the example of Adam and Eve uh, knew one another uh, in Genesis 4.1 or, or Adam uh, knew Eve. So you have some grammar that is uh, essentially looks like the way it's being used in all the stories throughout the Bible. Uh, is some sort of consensual sexual relationship. 
And then you have this language that's here of uh, the Hebrew word is laka. You don't need to know it, but that's this to take to or to seize. And then that's combined with this phrase lay with. So it's sort of a way of saying like, you know, to lie with someone is to have sex with them. But to take someone and lie with them is sort of a way of saying this is a kind of violent, uh, non-consexual, one person is doing something to someone else. Uh, and this is one of the arguments that uh, Gravette and Andruska and other scholars uh, have made convincingly. Uh, and Go read the articles if you can. They pull a bunch of uh, sources together. Um, and then there's this other phrase uh, that we'll see in some later texts that uh, ana or ina, uh, which basically means to humiliate or violate or or make miserable, uh, to almost to make someone ill. It's sort of this broad word uh, that can be used in a lot of ways, but when it's applied in a sexual scene, it seems that throughout the Old Testament literature, uh, it's implying there's sort of this non-consensual thing. So essentially, these scholars have gone through and they've looked at uh, one way they phrase it. There's there's typical grammatical phrases being used in atypical ways in order to intentionally signal that this is non-consensual, that this is an act of sexual violence. This wasn't just David having an affair, right? right? You talk about the subtle ways that Bathsheba is uh, blamed for this, is this is an affair and that the sin was an affair, right? Yeah, this is interesting because like, I've started to think that that's what was going on here. Um, and there's been a lot of people kind of talking about this. I've seen a lot of stuff on Twitter about um, rethinking Bathsheba, essentially. Um, so it's interesting to like actually get into some of the scholarship on this. Yeah, totally. Uh, we'll just have time here to cover a couple more points. One of my favorites when I uh, dug down and studied this is, um, I'll just give the, the high-level overview. Uh, one of the projects, Nate, you know I've been working on is, um, well, two projects. One is sort of Theology of Power. Two is uh, expanding the role of the Joseph story uh, throughout the Hebrew Scriptures and the way that plays into sort of messianic mm-hmm. uh, hope. Yep. And uh, so one of the parts of that idea of the the role of the Joseph story is that Joseph and Judah are are sort of being uh, juxtaposed with one another. So uh, like I said, there's rape all over the Old Testament. And uh, in the next episode, we're going to get into sort of how to think about those. Um, And specifically, there are multiple scenes where, where rape or sexual violence is happening, where there are two that are being paired next to each other, and you're supposed to read them both in tandem. And there's actually, uh, can you think, in the end of Genesis, I just mentioned Joseph, can you think of a, of a rape story? Oh, uh, is that Potiphar's wife? Yeah, so there's that kind of strange story that seems like it's coming out of left field of uh, Joseph gets out of prison. I thought that was just supposed this... to tell us to run away. <laughs> exactly, right? Uh, all the weird, we won't even get into all the weird uh ways that people have spiritualized or uh, moralized that story. But that's the story people know. And then even many scholars for many, many years have had no idea what to do with the chapter immediately preceding that, which is the strange sort of out of left field story of Judah raping or not really raping potentially, but uh, having sex with his daughter-in-law Tamar when Tamar dressed up like a prostitute. You remember that? Yeah, kind of. Amnon spilled his seed. Then there's oh, that yes. whole, uh-huh. <laughs> you get 
decades of uh, of youth group pastors telling kids not to masturbate masturbate because of uh, the spilling the seed text. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so in in Genesis, what you have is is Judah was the one who's chosen to rule and given the the green light to have power. And then you have this little uh, little brother, Joseph, who actually ends up proving he's the one worthy of power. So what happens in that story, we won't get into all the details, is uh, Tamar proves Judah to be hypocritical and abusing of his privilege. He wasn't taking care of, <laughs> of his daughter-in-law uh, by essentially enacting this ruse and, uh, and gets... Uh, Judah to admit that he was being this hypocritical fool. Uh, the very next chapter, essentially with this scene of sexual violence, where Judah is the uh, assaulter. Uh, then you have in the next uh, chapter, this scene where Joseph is the victim of a sexual assault. And it's pairing uh, those two things. So one of the things that passed me by for years is uh, there's a good chance Bathsheba is not actually a name. Uh what this is, is a way of connect, connecting uh, this story with David, with that same story uh, with Judah back in Genesis. So This feels like at the end of some movie when like one little thing changes, it's like the, the, the usual suspects and you, you see that one thing and it starts all unraveling and the whole movie is completely different than you thought it was. That's what that felt per- like when you that's said that. That's perfect. Cause honestly, you're gonna have to go back and reread these stories and then hopefully that's like what you're supposed to do, right? Once you get to the end. Have of- you seen the us- the usual suspects? Yeah, it's like uh what's the great line? Uh that everybody used to in church world used to apply the devil's greatest trick was Convinci- uh, convincing you convincing never you didn't exist. Yeah. yeah. Kaiser Sose? Kaiser Sose. Uh, yeah, so what do you want to do when you finish watching uh, and you find out about Kaiser Sose? Like, you want to go back and watch it all over again, right? Oh, yeah. Because uh, now you have the key, and so you can watch it, like, understanding it. So that's actually part of why, this is a side note, that's part of why I love studying the Bible, because I get that experience over and over again. There's so much we don't know, and you learn something new, you get to go back and then see how it's working. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Okay, so let me just recap this. I hope you can see the connections in this flyby. Okay, so Judah, back in Genesis. Judah is chosen to rule amongst his brothers, and Judah marries a Canaanite called Bathshua, which literally just means daughter of Shua. So we don't even know whether Bathshua is the name, or Bathsheba is just a way of saying, we don't know this woman's name. She was the daughter of Shua. And they had three sons, Er, Onan, and Shelah. The first son, Er, marries Tamar. We've heard this name. But God killed Er. So it was the next son's responsibility to marry his brother's wife and produce offspring for him. But Onan spilled his seed, like we just referenced, so God killed him too. So that's why Judah refuses to give Tamar to the third son. He's basically self-protecting. So he's refusing to take care of his daughter-in-law, Tamar. So then Tamar enacts this desperate plan, uh, (laughs) gets Judah to reveal himself as being this hypocritical, you know, jerk. And then the the kids born from this, from that fake prostitution sting thing, uh, this crazy drama, uh, become the heirs of the famous line of Judah. You know, the whole, like, Jesus from the line of Judah, like, all that. Right, right. So the whole point is that the chosen ruler uh, is abusing his power and is unfit to, to rule, all the while little Joseph 
next chapter over in Egypt is proving worthy to rule the entire world. So this is this contrast going on. Um, so the point of the whole David, Bathsheba, and like Uriah scene is to suggest that David is more like Judah than Joseph. If you're reading the whole Old Testament story, that's the point. It's supposed to remind you of this Judah scene, and, and here's how. Not just by the scenes kind of having some similar events, uh, but King David is sitting on Judah's throne, literally, taking a woman named Bathsheba. So I had actually never noticed this, but First Chronicles 3.5, uh, most likely this is because the the bet and the vav in Hebrew, those are two letters, kind of the B and the V, almost sound identical. And so Bathsheba and Bathsheba basically could have just been replacements of uh, phonetical, phonetic mm. uh, complements. So it could actually and have intended to be the exact same. It's just the same name. Yeah. So if First Chronicles 3.5 says David had a wife named Bathsheba. Ah. So literally, it's just filling in the same exact name. We haven't noticed that oftentimes uh, because we're not making the connections and because it's spelled differently in our English transliteration. Um, and, and by the way, just note for reading the Bible, anytime you see the same name used twice, for instance, like Tamar <laughs> or Bathsheba or Bathsheba, there's a connection. Like they aren't just randomly using names uh, twice in the Bible. Um, so, and if you remember, it pointed out when we started that story that Uriah was a Hittite and Hittite, Hittites were Canaanites. That was one of the people groups that lived in Canaan. So the original Bathsheba that Judah was married to was an outsider, a Canaanite named <laughs> Bathsheba. Uh, it's likely that the wife of this other Canaanite, Uriah, was also uh, a Canaanite. So it's, it's a way of making another connection to say, hey, here's another king marrying an, an outside immigrant woman <laughs> with the same name, daughter of Shua, doing basically the exact same thing, which is a perversion of his power and privilege uh, to take advantage uh, of another woman and then to try to cover it up. So that's it's not just rape or sexual assault or mistreatment of women or blatant misogyny. It's then also the use of one's power to cover up that thing. And then the person who was doing the cover up gets exposed. Judah got exposed by Tamar uh, yeah. and then David ends up getting exposed uh, uh, by Nathan. Yeah. So again, this, this kind of goes two directions. Seeing the connections here shows that, that, Understanding this larger story of showing how people, when they gain power, misuse it, and rape is one of the key ways that they do that. Sexual violence against powerless women is one of the symptoms of their abuse of power. Uh, that makes us see that this story is rape. It also goes the other direction and so that rape or the, the uh, sexual violence towards women is one of the key things that reveals that someone is abusing their power. So right. actually, uh, these stories, and there are many more of them that we could touch on, these stories uh, are meant to uh, to indicate to us. Specifically, the whole point is that it's rape. And so one other piece of the scholarship that I didn't see until I read uh, these two articles um, is that there's this really fascinating history through uh, the scribal history and translation of uh, the Hebrew Bible into different languages, like long before our English translations in the first uh, several 
centuries of translation and basically all all of the translations go out of their way to emphasize uh, that David was doing something to Bathsheba that was non-consensual. Some of them even remove the line that has Bathsheba coming back to David when he sends somebody to go grab her and it says she comes to David. They remove that line as if saying like she didn't even do a single willing, she didn't take a single willing step Hmm. uh, in this thing. And uh, one of the Targums even adds uh, a line uh, to say that David took her by force. Um, So in the translation history, literally of people who have uh, translated these texts, uh, including then uh, the the rabbis in the Talmud and the Mishnah, uh, and this is one of the points I loved um, in Sandy Gravett's scholarship. She goes like, the the tendency of all of the scribes always was to whitewash over, <laughs> especially someone like King David, right? Would have been to whitewash. Uh, over this guy's sins and to make him look better than he was. And because of the misogyny baked into these uh, cultures, one of the easiest things you could have done would have been to essentially write in and blame uh, the woman and divvy up the blame. Uh, but none of the scribes or or rabbis throughout history uh, have done that. So even in the translation history, which this is something, again, we won't see unless you get into some of the deeper uh, scholarship and and textual history, uh, people have gone out of their way to emphasize that this was a non-consexual act. Essentially, uh, this was rape. Right. That's interesting. Which, so basically you're saying in that culture, (laughs) you'd have to go out of your way to, to say it wasn't that, and they've done that. Yeah, that's a good, that's a really good argument. Okay, Tim, give me your best because we've decided, we decided um, a few minutes ago that this needs to be a two-part thing because we're already over the limit. So we're going to have a second part. Tim, people are listening right now. How are you going to convince them to listen to part two? Okay, actually... Oh, I did, but I, oh, uh, also, you have 30 seconds. Well, I'm going to save my 30 seconds by making you do this, Nate. Uh, it's going to take more than 30 seconds. I want you to read, this is the last point, I want you to read the scene, the next chapter, when Nathan confronts David. Uh, It's going to close out our conversation here and uh, tease sort of where we're going. Nathan rebukes David. Okay, so how much do I read? Uh, Read this until you feel like puking. (sighs) I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. If you're getting veggie tales in your head right now, just stop. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle, to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are that man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to 
I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah, and if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. So God gave all the women to... Okay, anyways. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am okay. Stop. Now, hold on. That's the last line I need you to read. Just just power through it real quick. Okay, okay. Where was I? Um, Verse 11. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad day, oh, broad daylight. And uh, you did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. This is my tease, Nate. Think, just think, stop, think about this for a second. Uh, I, I take no joy in doing this. Uh, seriously. Think about the analogy. So David went, took advantage of Bathsheba, and then had her husband killed to cover it up. And what is the analogy that is supposedly coming from, indirectly at least, from God? It's comparing David to a rich man with lots of animals, sheep. And that is the analogy to him having lots of his own wives that God has already given him. And what he did is wrong, not because he raped a woman, but because he stole a poor man's sheep slash wife who only had one wife. Basically just like taking property. And this is... From a poor person. This is what is described as his sin. The thing he did because he had no compassion, not for Bathsheba, for Uriah, because Uriah is a man. So the whole premise of this story is, is based on a conception that Bathsheba was Uriah's property, whose emotions don't even matter for us to know in the story, whose well-being isn't even mentioned in this story, who's never even essentially allowed to uh, have a line or to be the subject of a sentence. Uh, The point is, in the story, the point is that David was rich because God had given him tons of wives. (laughs) We'll actually give a count of how many next week. And he did something wrong to Uriah because he took Uriah's wife. And if that weren't bad enough, the consequence, says God, according to 2 Samuel, the consequence is that God will get back at David by having one of David's friends sleep with David's wives in public, in front of everybody. Jeez. So if a story based on the kind of misogyny... (laughs) Uh, that treats women as as absolute property and the rights over women's bodies to be absolutely given to men and that this whole thing is just a matter of men fighting over their rights to, to rule particular women. If that weren't bad enough, supposedly the divine sanction, the consequence, is the public rape of other women in order to get back at David. That is the kind of stuff that we're going to come back and talk about next week. That's 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 really messed up. 
All right, I have a lot of questions about that. Um, I don't even know what they are yet, <laughs> but it just feels so wrong. Yeah, sit on them. So this week, basically, I was making the point, this story is about rape. I think the Genesis 6 story is also about rape. I think there are actually a dozen or more stories uh, overtly about rape. What we're going to get into next week is what do we do with these texts? There's another great listener question. What is the Bible doing here? Uh, what are we seeing if we look closely? Sh- should we look closely? And uh, if we see what we think we're seeing, then, then how do we respond to this stuff? All right, come back next time. Thanks for being with us. We have a whole second podcast we'd love you to listen to and be a part of and a Patreon community that's growing. And you can join that all at patreon.com slash almost heretical. You can email us or find out more about the show and why we're even doing this at almostheretical.com. We'll see you next time. Peace out. And like that, he's gone.